0: If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of February 4, 2024. The podcast that took it to the limit one more time. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's brutify the news of the bogus. And in something that will come as no surprise to regular listeners, but now there's data on it, elites in the US trust government more than average Americans and like freedom less. And in other news, water is wet. A first-of-its-kind poll from the Committee to Unleash Prosperity found that the gap between regular Americans and elites is actually pretty enormous. The poll covered issues of finances, individual freedom, climate change, education, and President Biden. The results were published in a report entitled, Them vs. U.S., The Two Americas, and How the Nation's Elite is Out of Touch with Average Americans. They interviewed a thousand elites, defined as the 1% of Americans who met three criteria, holding a postgraduate degree having an annual household income of more than $150,000 and living in a zip code with more than 10,000 people per square mile. Three-fourths of them say their economic picture has improved these days versus 20% of U.S. voters overall. 88% of Ivy League graduates said they were better off. Economic statistics show that, for working-class people, their real take-home pay has suffered under Biden. According to the report, quote, These results confirm what people have long suspected. Today, there are two Americas. One is wealthier, more highly educated, and attended the best schools. They put much more trust in government to do the right thing, and, by their own admission, benefit from more expansive government policies. They have also been hurt far less by the high inflation of the Biden presidency than those who live from paycheck to paycheck and are in the lower and middle classes. 57% of voters said there was too much control over their lives, but 47% of elites and 55% of Ivy League graduates said that there was too much freedom. As the report explained, quote, "...that level of trust likely comes from the fact that leading government officials are drawn from the same cultural background as the elites. Additionally, unlike most voters, elites can easily access and influence government officials on issues of concern." The report also asked about rationing of energy and meat to combat climate change. Voters were 63% against it, while elites were 77% in favor, and Ivy League graduates 89% in favor. On the question of how much people should be taxed to pay for climate change policies, 72% of voters said $100 or less, while 70% of elites and 75% of Ivy League graduates said or more. And as for an outright ban on cars, appliances, and air conditioning, the approval rating for voters was between 13 and 25 percent, whereas among elites it was 53 to 69 percent, and for Ivy League graduates it was 68 to 80 percent. Because of course we all know THEY won't be the ones having to do without. About half of all voters have a favorable opinion of lawyers. 43% union leaders, 44% journalists, and 28% members of Congress. Whereas with elites, those numbers were 78% for lawyers and union leaders, 79% for journalists, and 67% members of Congress. And for Ivy League graduates, it was 91% for lawyers, 86% for union leaders, 84% for journalists, and 86% for members of Congress. As for Biden's approval rating, it was 44% among voters and 84% among elites. According to the report, quote, The elites represent 1% of the U.S. population, but have an outsized voice on public policy in the United States, with their views seeming somehow to dominate the national conversation. This may be because it is the elites themselves who determine what that conversation will be about on campus, in the legacy media, and corporate boardrooms. This Grand Canyon-sized chasm between where everyday Americans stand on the state of the country, expanding government power, draconian climate change solutions, and Joe Biden's job performance, may partly explain the Donald Trump phenomenon and his high approval ratings among working-class voters who feel wholly connected with the rebellion against the arrogance of the ruling class elites. These un-American views are not the result of a conspiracy. They arise from what might be better described as a fraternity culture. Just over half of the elites have a degree from one of the 12 elite universities. These schools play a crucial role in defining the elite culture and perspectives. Elites who attended one of these schools are more likely to talk about politics and have more extreme views than elites who attended other schools. Other attitudes in the survey flow naturally from the difference of opinion concerning individual freedom to fight climate change Members of the elite strongly support remaking American society by banning things that are part of the fabric of life in America. Outside of the elite bubble, such bans are not a part of serious conversation. And that's why it's so important for the rest of us to make our voices as loud as we can. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. Um, so... apparently, Ben Shapiro made a rap single, and it topped the charts beating out Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears. I'm as surprised as you are. His anti-woke rap, Facts, which he made in collaboration with Canadian rapper Tom McDonald, beat out Spears and Timberlake, who separately and confusingly released Signals both titled Selfish on the U.S. iTunes chart. As of this podcast prep, the top songs on the iTunes charts were, in order, Tom McDonald, Facts, Megan Thee Stallion, Hiss, Billy Joel, Turn the Lights Back On, Benson Boone, Beautiful Things, Cat Janis, Dance You Out of My Head, Nicki Minaj, Bigfoot, Jack Harlow, Lovin' On Me, and Justin Timberlake, Selfish. Shapiro joined McDonald on the track to attack Woke Karens and people who hate him on the Internet, in a video where he wears a gray hoodie with red lettering that reads, Facts Don't Care About Your Feelings. Shapiro's contribution goes, Let's look at the stats. I've Got Facts. My money like Lizzo, my pockets are fat. Homie, I'm epic, don't be a WAP. Dog, it's a Yamaka, homie, no cap. Look at the graphs, look at my charts, you're blowing money on strippers and cars. You're going to prison, I'm on television. Dog, no one knows who you are. Keep hating me on the internet. My comment section, all woke Karens. I make racks off compound interest. Y'all live with your parents. Nikki, take some notes. I just did this for fun. All my people download this. Let's get a Billboard number one. No real point to the story other than the internet is weird. But considering our last story, just know that it is possible for minority voices to get their message out there. Alright, on a more serious topic. From our Never Do Business in New York department, a message we've been hearing from a lot of people over the years, including Louis Rossman, we're facing the culmination of Donald Trump's New York civil fraud trial where he could face dissolution of all his businesses. Even though it's a case where no one was harmed, no one complained, and the banks he supposedly defrauded testified on his behalf saying they were very happy with the arrangement. We're told with Trump, no one is above the law, and he's being treated just like any other defendant. But this just isn't the case. In a penalty that's only been imposed a dozen times, Trump's case is the only one that was threatened without any victims and any tangible losses. According to Columbia University law professor Eric Talley, quote, This is basically a death penalty for a business. Is he getting his just desserts because of the fraud, or because people don't like him? The Associated Press reviewed 150 cases under New York's repeated fraud statute, which was passed in 1956. In every case where the entire company was taken away, the key factors were the number of victims and the amount of losses. Tangibly so! Customers lost money, bought defective products, or never received the services they paid for. And the business takeovers were used as a last resort to stop a fraud in progress and protect potential victims, such as a phony psychologist who sold dubious treatments, a fake lawyer who claimed he could get students into law school, and supposed financial advisors who swindled people out of the deeds to their homes. Even if you do think that Trump's behavior was somehow fraudulent, according to Attorney General Letitia James's legal team, it stopped two years ago. They make the claim that banks were defrauded because Trump exaggerated the value of his assets, and therefore he got the loans at a lower interest rate, costing the banks money. But as the banks themselves testified, they do their own due diligence with these things and would have given him the same deal anyway. Trump represents a large, respected brand, and it's not like he's a big credit risk or anything. University of Michigan law professor William Thomas said, quote, Who suffered here? We haven't seen a long list of victims. Even Adam Lightman Bailey, who successfully sued a Trump condo building for misrepresenting sales, said, This sets a horrible precedent. Judge Arthur Ingeron is threatening the disillusion, not only of Trump's New York holdings like Trump Tower and 40 Wall Street, but also his Mar-a-Lago club and residence in Florida, a hotel and condo in Chicago, and several golf clubs, including ones in Miami, Los Angeles, And even Scotland! He isn't even a federal judge! The statute, coded as Executive Law 6312, doesn't require a showing of intent and even forbids a jury trial. Yeah, that whole thing about his lawyers didn't check a box is ridiculously stupid. If you believe that for a second, you should feel bad. What's interesting, though, is not the other cases where the law shut down businesses but cases where it didn't. It didn't shut down a porn site that made millions of dollars of illegal credit card charges. It didn't shut down an auto lender that charged hidden interest rates. And it didn't even shut down a river rafting company after a customer drowned and the AG showed it repeatedly used unlicensed guides or none at all. The AP wrote, And some legal experts worry that if the judge goes out of his way to punish the former president with that worst-case scenario, it could make it easier for courts to wipe out companies in the future. Yeah, that's what people need to keep in mind! Shane, why are you so worried about Trump? I'm not! Trump's a billionaire! He can take care of himself! I'm worried about what they'd be able to do to the rest of us if they succeed with him. And so should all of you. Do you have children, or nieces, or nephews? Are you homeschooling? Or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? Now it's time to desulfurate this week's biggest bogum emitter. And this week it goes to Judge Kathleen McCormick, who is making us consider a never do business in Delaware department. She voided out in an instant the deal that made Elon Musk tens of billions and Tesla hundreds of billions. Buckle up, folks, this is gonna be a long one. Well, there's a lot of backstory we have to catch up on. In 2018, the Tesla board of directors and Musk set out a very ambitious set of goals and milestones and market cap targets sustained over a period of time. It was really unlike any such package in history, made to avoid pitfalls of other deals, such as the CEO pumping the stock, taking a bonus, and then the stock crashes. Just listen to what CNBC had to say about the details of the plan at the time.
1: Elon Musk telling me he's now agreed to stay on as CEO of Tesla for the next decade. There'd been a lot of speculation uh, that he'd be stepping down in the next two or three years. He had said that once the completion of the Model S uh, or Model 3, rather, uh, was up and running, that he might not stay uh, at the company, at least as the CEO. But Tesla now announcing a radical new compensation plan. It could be perhaps the most radical compensation plan uh, in history. Musk's compensations can be tied directly to the company's performance. Uh, the executive will receive no guaranteed compensation of any kind at all. He gets no salary, cash bonus, equity. Uh, he only gets equity that that vests over time, but only if he reaches these hurdle rates, which are dare I say, crazy. So right now the company's worth $59 billion. Mm-hmm. They run at $50 billion increments. So if he gets the company to $100 billion... Well, you're just talking market capitalization, not mar- based on revenue, so not there, based so on the number gonna be, of there's production. Gonna be, there's going to be two metrics at each step. So the first step is he has to get the company to $100 billion and reach these operational and adjusted EBITDA and revenue number. If he doesn't get either of them, he gets nothing. At each $50 billion number, he collects one percent of the company. If somehow magically he would get the company to six hundred fifty billion dollars, which is literally what the plan calls for, if you can believe this, he would collect the equivalent of about fifty-five what billion gets- dollars in compensation. Otherwise, he gets absolutely okay, nothing. Okay, what if you get it to six hundred fifty billion dollars and then it immediately collapses to five hundred billion dollars? Is it just hitting that market capitalization milestone that matters, or is it keeping it there for a certain time? Is it hitting? So it here's where it gets day? even more interesting. The shares vest, uh, but then he has to hold the shares for five years. At each break. But you board. still get it, right? If the, if, even if uh, market capitalization is the weirdest thing. I've No, ever no, 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 no. You, you, it's it. impossible to game because you, even if you were to get the company in the market cap to hundred billion dollars, yeah. you then have to, by the way, hit the operational numbers. On top of it. On top of it. It's a one, you have to get both and then you have to hold the shares for five years. I mean, it's, so, well, if, it, it, so, if, so if you were trying to do something temporary to try to, to try and get the stock price, you, up, you can't so, well, because you five years later shares. your shares yeah. will be worthless. It right. would affect decisions on buybacks and issuing right. stock and floats and, and all kinds. Of, I've never uh, heard of perform. another company time. Nobody's ever done it. But he literally gets nothing. And the other thing that's interesting is if he gets to let's say ninety nine billion dollars, yeah, he, he gets, gets n- nothing. If you if you get to the next <laughs> one, if you get to one hundred forty nine billion dollars, you get nothing. If you get so, but it is truly uh, eat what you kill, uh, skin in the game.
0: A sustained $50 billion market cap increase is insane! Very few CEOs could do it even once, let alone 12 times! But miraculously, Musk met every single one of those goals. And by the way, this ambitious package, which basically put all the risk on Musk and none on Tesla, was approved by 73% of the stockholders. In essence, The court has demanded that Musk should have worked for Tesla for the last six years for free, because he took no paycheck. These stock options were his only compensation. And yet, Tesla was sued by an anonymous person who bought one share of stock. That anonymous plaintiff, according to the judge, Claims that Tesla Incorporated's directors breached their judiciary duties by awarding Elon Musk a performance-based equity compensation plan, the largest potential compensation opportunity ever observed in public markets, by multiple orders of magnitude, 250 times larger than the contemporaneous median peer compensation plan, and over 33 times larger than the plan's closest comparison, which was Musk's prior compensation plan. This post-trial decision enters judgment for the plaintiff, finding that the compensation plan is subject to review under the entire fairness standard. The defendants bore the burden of proving that the compensation plan was fair, and they failed to meet their burden. At a high level, the 6% for $600 billion argument has a lot of appeal. But that appeal quickly fades when one remembers that Musk owns 21.9% of Tesla, when the board approved his compensation plan. This ownership stake gave him every incentive to push Tesla to levels of transformative growth. Yeah, that was the whole idea! At the end of 2018, Tesla's stock price was around $20. As of this podcast prep, it's trading around $190. Tesla stockholders have massively benefited from this arrangement. She even says it outright, revealing her bias and her preconceived conclusion, quote, This decision dares to boldly go where no man has gone before, or at least where no Delaware court has tread. The collection of features characterizing Musk's relationship with Tesla and its directors gave him enormous influence over Tesla. In addition to his 21.9% equity stake, Musk was the paradynamic superstar CEO who held some of the most influential corporate positions, CEO, Chair, and Founder, enjoyed thick ties with the directors tasked with negotiating on behalf of Tesla, and dominated the process that led to board approval of his compensation plan. By the way, Musk wasn't a founder. She's just ranting. The excuse she used was, the board withheld the nature of the relationships he had with other board members, such as, I kid you not, THE FACT THAT KIMBALL MUSK IS HIS BROTHER. He also allegedly didn't reveal his 15-year friendship with venture capitalist Ira Aaron Price and a 20-year-old business relationship with Antonio Gracias. How did these relationships come to light? EVERYONE ALREADY KNEW ABOUT THEM! So she's punishing Musk for not disclosing things THAT WERE ALREADY PUBLIC KNOWLEDGE. She rants on like a conspiracy theorist for a while, and then says, quote, Given the collection of people tasked with negotiating on Tesla's behalf, it is unsurprising that there was no meaningful negotiation over any of the terms of the plan. No, there was no meaningful negotiation, because it was a sweetheart deal for Tesla! Quote, In the final analysis, Musk launched a self-driving process recalibrating the speed and direction along the way as he saw fit. The process arrived at an unfair price. And she, not the stockholders, is going to determine what's fair. Her ruling pushed Tesla stocks down some 3%. Musk said in an ex-post, quote, Never incorporate your company in the state of Delaware. And in another, quote, Change your state of incorporation out of Delaware before they lock the doors. They are currently blocking John Malone from changing incorporation from Delaware to Nevada. He ran an ex-poll asking, Should Tesla change its state of incorporation to Texas, home of its physical headquarters? Over 87% of the respondents voted yes. In response, Musk posted, quote, Tesla will move immediately to hold a shareholder vote to transfer State of Incorporation to Texas. It is unbearably ridiculous that the court not only took this seriously enough to even let it in the door, but actually gave the person an enormous win. And all that does is contribute to the declining respect and confidence that people are having in our court system. The news media has been quoting Amit Batish at executive pay research firm Equilar, who estimated in 2022 that Musk's package was six times larger than the combined pay of the 200 highest-paid executives in 2021. But how many of them brought a company from a market cap of $50 billion up to over a trillion? So a lot of this really pointed to Judge McCormick having a bias and even being corrupt. Enlightening information came from Kanikoa the Great, who runs Canicoa News on Substack. He revealed on X that this is the same judge who ruled against him in the Twitter decision. And before she became head of the Delaware Chancery Court, she worked at the law firm Young Conway, who for decades were major donors to Joe Biden. They also hosted Hunter Biden's gubernatorial campaign event for John Carney in 2016, with then-VP Biden as guest speaker. After Carney became governor, he nominated McCormick to the Chancery Court. In March of 2018, Hunter Biden threatened legal action against his Chinese business partners, saying, quote, I will bring suit in the Chancery Court in Delaware, which, as you know, is my home state, and I am privileged to have worked with, and know, every judge on the Chancery Court. After Musk purchased Twitter, Joe Biden called for a federal investigation into Musk. Afterwards, the DOJ, the SEC, and the FTC all initiated legal actions against Tesla, SpaceX, and X. All of that means that the judge should have recused herself instantly and unprompted, as judges often do when they have such a connection to a case, to avoid even the appearance of impropriety. We don't know if there was any actual collusion here, but the fact that it even looks possible, let alone probable, Demands recusation. So this all seems to be part of Biden's weaponization of the justice system against his political opponents. You cannot say that this decision is good for Tesla stockholders because the stock price went down as a result of it. And you can't even say it's good for Delaware. It's terrible for the state. So many companies incorporate in Delaware because the laws have always been very business friendly. In fact, Over 66% of the Fortune 500 are incorporated in Delaware. This decision puts all of that in jeopardy. So all of that makes Judge Kathleen McCormick this week's Biggest Belgany Matter. Go to Firmoo, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmoo dot dot TV. And now, let's tentaculate this week's Idiot, Idiot. And this week, it goes to Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor for conduct very unbecoming a judge, let alone a Supreme Court Justice, when she spoke at an event at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. She engaged in the most embarrassing screeching over majority rulings she disagreed with, quote, "'I live in frustration.' As you heard, every loss truly traumatizes me in my stomach and in my heart. But I have to get up the next morning and keep on fighting. But that's not what she's supposed to do! She's not supposed to be fighting or advocating or anything of the kind. She's supposed to be impartially ruling on the law. In a response to a question from the dean about how increasingly discouraged they feel, quote, How can you look at these people and say that you're entitled to despair? You're not. I'm not. Change never happens on its own. Change happens because people care about moving the arc of the universe toward justice. And it can take time. And it can take frustration. Oh my God, can you believe this woman? I mean, yeah, judges are narcissists, we know this. But this is cranked up to 11. She spoke about the court actually supporting the Second Amendment, like she's sworn to do, and about the court possibly invalidating the Chevron Doctrine, which we've covered repeatedly, and which she apparently loves with all her dear little heart. And in showing how impartial she isn't, she actually admitted to trashing lawyers to the other justices while they were arguing, quote, I can't tell you how often I'll look at Neil Gorsuch and I'll send him a note and say, I want to kill that lawyer, because he or she didn't give up that case. Because by the time you come to the Supreme Court, it's not about your client anymore. It's not about their case. It's about how that legal issue will affect the development of law and how you pitch it. If you pitch it too broadly, you're gonna kill the claims of a whole swath of people. BUT IT'S THE JOB OF A LAWYER TO REPRESENT THEIR CLIENT IN THEIR CASE! THE JUSTICES HAVE TO CONSIDER THE LARGER ISSUES, BUT THE LAWYERS ARE REPRESENTING CLIENTS! BUT SHE'LL APPARENTLY DO THIS WITH ANY LAWYER ARGUING FOR A POSITION SHE DOESN'T LIKE. I was trying to find a complete transcript of her talk to see what else she said, but given that this was reported by CNN, and what they felt was the best part about her talk, I don't think it's at all unfair to say that these remarks absolutely make Justice Sotomayor this week's Idiot, Idiot Well, that wraps up this She's My Carer. She cares so I don't have to. edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support, and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar, and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from John Bailey. I cannot properly give advice to anybody. It is very often supposed judges can give advice, and I therefore take this public opportunity of saying that a judge cannot do it. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under a commons attribution on commercial low derivatives 4.0 international license. Gossip